Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live broadcasting project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour or so, we'll be talking project management. Uh, Before we jump into the show, I, of course, want to say thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. We've been on an amazing journey for the past seven years, helping organizations large and small across industries with project management resources, establishing and improving your PMOs, and project management training. Visit www.thepmosquad.com to learn about all of our services. And, man, are we living in some crazy times right now. It's very weird. We had to do a webinar earlier this week for a firm out of the U.K., and uh, attendance, I felt, was up on that webinar more than normal, and I think that's because so many people are working from home that they have a little bit more leeway in what they're doing to connect and educate and and get wisdom out there. So I actually think this podcast that we've been doing, a radio show we've been doing, is going to be a great avenue for folks to stay current uh, with their PDUs and with their education uh, and their learning agility to be able to increase uh, their career growth and their career span. And in a few months when this is all over, it'll be an interesting experiment to see if everybody goes back to the office or if we stay working remote. So today we're going to be talking project management, learning agility, neuroscience, behavioral project management, a lot of great topics with our guests, Veronica Schmidt-Harvey and Josh Ramirez. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. We'll take a moment here to give you guys an opportunity to say hello to our listeners and introduce yourselves. Josh, we'll start with you. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you, Joe and Veronica. Uh, I'm Josh Ramirez. president and founder of the Institute for Neuro and Behavioral Project Management, a brand new organization where we're blending um, behavioral science, neuroscience with project management process, essentially redesigning project management around the brain. Um, A little about about me, I spent a while in project management, um, a lot of work in the Department of Energy complex, uh, and then recently, or I should say sort of recently, for the last four years, I've been... um, completing my PhD in business psychology, which is where my research came about. Fantastic. And of course, we were originally connected uh, by Ruth Pierce, who's been a great friend of the show. Uh, So thank you, Ruth, for the introduction of Josh. And Josh, we've been chasing you for a little while trying to find the time to coordinate. So it's great to finally have you uh, and I, our schedules to connect and have you on the show. Yes, I appreciate it. And of course, Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited about being here and talking with both of you. And uh, just a little bit about myself. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a leadership specialist. Uh, like Josh, I also uh, have my training in psychology. I have a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. But the past 30 years, I've spent working with leaders literally all over the globe. Uh, it's been an incredible journey, and I've learned so much about what it takes to be effective as a leader. Uh, and one of those things is learning agility. And I think even though, you know, Joe, and when we booked this uh, event, uh, we didn't realize what sort of a VUCA world we'd be in right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I can't tell you, learning agility is really critical to deal with, with what's going on. So I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. 
And what's great, of course, uh, for our listeners out there, as you know, we're not just a traditional PMBOK-driven radio show on project management. Uh, we love bringing in discussions like neuroscience and leadership and learning agility because we as individuals really are leading teams to execute on projects. So getting leadership skills, understanding how the brain works, uh, and how human behavior works makes us better project managers. So I'm really excited to hear what both of you have to offer today. It's going to be a fun show. So let's jump into it, right? Let's get uh, talking project management. And and Josh, first question over to you to get us going is, you know, you talk about neuroscience and behavioral stuff, and, and I have no education in any of those things, although we've had some guests on who've talked about this. Uh, the brain in a computer, right? How are they similar, right? They're both processing information, but what separates us from machine, right? Well, I think, uh, you know, typically when we look at a computer, we think of just this logical machine that we put data in, it takes, runs calculations, processes, and gives us outputs. And the brain is pretty much pretty similar in that regard. And then it takes, you know, it has data inputs, computer does, it has memory, and then it processes information and gives you outputs. Same, similar with the brain, right? It has, takes data in. It uh, has memory and storage and then processes information and then gives you outputs. And I think the biggest differences between computers and, and the human brain is really that the human brain isn't as rational as a computer would be, so to say, right? I mean, a computer gives you logical sequences. You know, it's kind of if-then scenarios. The brain really uh, functions more for survival. And so that in and of itself, just like all other mammals, changes how we process information. The issue being is that we tend to think of ourselves as being logical. Each one of us thinks that we're logical and we think, you know, pretty straight lined and and everything is purely rational. But there's some irrational processes going in in the background that really give us different decision-making through cognition than what we assume is going on. Cognitive biases, which many people have heard of being one of those examples. Well, I, I just know my wife reminds me frequently how I'm being irrational in my thought process, even though I think I'm being logical. <laughs> or, or, or even uh, I like to tie things back to our everyday lives. Right, I'm a sports fan, and I know that my love of the Boston Red Sox leads to irrational behavior and thoughts when logically I know they may not be the best at at the current season or whatever, but I still uh, think they are, right? I mean, my brain just doesn't work that way. And a computer would tell me immediately, hey, you know, your team's horrible this year. Stop thinking like that. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because, um, and when we typically think of the words behavioral science or neuroscience, I think because of, you know, what we've grown up with, so to say, in business, we tend to have those other frames of reference, and Veronica can probably help me with this as well, but we get those other frames of reference of, okay, if I hear the word behavioral science or neuroscience, I think of frames like leadership or motivation or emotional intelligence, right? Those are kind of all the feeling sides of, of the brain, but we also have this cognition and thinking side of the brain that's like purely processing that's going on in the background. And I think when we, when we, when we start thinking about redesigning project management around the brain, it's tweaking processes, it's t- tweaking interfaces, redesigning of metrics, 
Um, it's not just skills training. It's, it's, it's the entire package, right? So it gets really complex, but very, very intriguing and interesting. Yeah, when, and Veronica, when I think about this, and, and I don't know if this is a direct connection or not, so I'm going to lean over to you, the expert on this, but what Josh is talking about there, to me, leans into your learning agility thought process. Absolutely. There's some definitely some connections. And again, first of all, let me just define a little bit what learning agility is, because I know uh, in the project management space, people may immediately think of agile. And learning agility, I think, can contribute to that, but it is something different. What learning agility is really all about is being able to learn and apply those learnings at the pace of change. And, you know, those who aren't able to do this are simply not going to be able to keep up with the change that we're going through. Um, You know, Josh mentioned EQ. Um, many don't realize that while IQ and EQ are critical to effectiveness as a leader or a project manager, um, learning agility is even more important. And it's even a better predictor of effectiveness as a leader. So people don't realize that. Um, so those who are able to take control of learning agility and are empowered to know how that works are likely to survive and thrive. And as Josh mentioned, um, learning agility is, it involves multiple components. When you think about learning agility, it's all about personal change. Um, now, it's going to contribute to the organization being agile, but it's really at its heart about individual change. And change can be on a, uh, a cognitive or thinking level. It can be on an emotional level, a behavioral level. Um, and those three are, are very closely intertwined. And typically, it takes change on all those levels to be ultimately effective. Um, but Josh is talking about our thinking patterns, and one of the most common obstacles for leaders is that they'll be in a new situation and they continue to apply what's always worked for them in the past. There's a fairly famous executive coach called Marshall Goldsmith who wrote the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's about the idea that leaders will, something will make a leader successful and they'll continue to do that even in situations where it no longer works. Big, big cause of derailment. And in the coaching participants I work with, oftentimes we'll find that unlearning is just as important as new learning. And so I think it will get into some of the cognitive biases that Josh talks about and kind of breaking down automaticity. Yeah, and and, and on the automaticity, and, and Veronica and I were talking about this earlier, uh, in in projects, because we're, de- very, we're defined by the time constraint, I mean, the definition of a project is a temporary endeavor to deliver a product or service, right? And so because of that, the time constraint defines us and sets us apart from operations. That time constraint actually changes processing in the human brain. What that does is it induces more system one thinking, which is automatic. It's automatic versus deliberative. So almost by default, the project in and of itself is creating an environment where people's cognitions are changing. And when that happens, when we resort to that automatic thinking because of time pressure, learning agility goes down and innovation goes down because people then process information based on habitual thinking, habits, cognitive biases, etc. So it gets really interesting, the dynamic between learning agility and time pressure from a project. So let's, uh, listeners out there, of course, are at various stages of their journey in the project management and related fields, right? So some of them, 
may not be grasping fully what you guys are talking about. So let's boil that down maybe into even uh, lower layman's terms, cognition and cognitive behavior, right? Mm -hmm. What is, if I'm a 25-year-old project manager that's thinking about what I'm doing this weekend, I might not really be focused on what does that mean. Cognition's pretty easy. It's basically thinking. It's how we think. And how about cognitive behavior? Cognitive behavior is is the thinking processes that are going on in our head. Josh, would you agree that's a fair definition? Yeah, and and when we hear the word behavior, there's a lot of frames that are associated with that as well. But behavior is essentially the output of the thinking, right? So we have cognition or thinking, and then we have the behavior, the output that's associated with that thinking. So when we say behavioral science, it's usually things that are observable, right? Where in neuroscience, there's those things that are observed going on in the brain. So I hope that explains it a little bit better. Yeah. And just to add on to it um, and bring in the third strand of emotion, um, most of our emotion is driven by, you know, how we're processing information and thinking about it. And so if we see something as a threat, we're going to do things differently than if we don't perceive a threat. And I think, uh, again, tying this into the project management space, so many times we'll be in an, an organization and we'll talk about how we're going to start a new project. And just by using the word project, the sponsor of that project now carries with him or her usually a negative reaction to what project has meant for overhead, delays, budgets, finances, and we have to overcome those things when it may be every other project we've run for that department may have been successful. But we have an immediate reaction. We have to overcome an emotional reaction that we have to then kind of justify and prove our capabilities against. And I'm assuming this fits right into this wheelhouse of this discussion of how do we use cognitive reasoning and behavior to overcome emotional reactions. Well, I think uh, I think you set the stage for talking about the learning agile process. And so when a leader is in a new situation, I think, and ideally even in anticipating a new situation, one of the first things that's important to respond in effective and agile ways is to really stop and observe what's going on. Um, We make assumptions that, like you said, because we hear the word project, we assume certain things. And those assumptions can really get in trouble. And uh, you, we hear more and more these days about the concept of mindfulness. And sometimes that can seem like almost a buzzword. But we're so much off and running and this fast pace that Josh talked about that uh, one of the keys in the process overall is taking the time to just be mindful, to be fully paying attention to what's going on around us. Um, just to give you an example, even with this uh, this uh, coronavirus crisis that we're going through, um, an, an agile learner would have been looking around at the environment and paying attention to what's going on and anticipating what could happen and not just responding to sort of what comes automatically to them. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, when I hear this, Josh, I'm thinking... Prediction versus planning, right? The difference between those two items as it relates to this, how does that play into the work that you're doing? So once again, back to typical frames, when we, when we talk about in project management, we talk about the word planning, that brings frames of reference to mind like, oh, I got to go and create a proposal. We're going to have a proposal team. Um, we got to get together, develop the scope, do some risk analysis right? All these processes come to mind when we talk about planning. But in that process, so to say, of 
putting a plan together and, and focusing on the processes that we have to do, I think we lose sight of what it is we're actually doing when we're putting together a plan. And that is we are making a prediction. So if we were to break it down to its most core elements, delivering the milestone on time and on budget is two major pieces. Predict what we will deliver and then deliver on that prediction. So when we look at prediction versus just saying the word planning, prediction brings in all kinds of behavioral and cognitive pieces because then we can say, okay, well, if we're looking at prediction and peering into the future and saying, this is what's going to do, what we're going to do, this is what's going to happen. We find that there are all kinds of biases associated with prediction. Um, and then we find that there's also disciplines that are already studying this, you know, prediction and, and, and forecasting sciences, um, uh, risk and uncertainty sciences, all these things that are forward looking, not just time now, but they're forward looking. And we can bring in things like optimism bias, and there's neuroscience and optimism bias. There's neuroscience in prediction. I mean, now with the ability of an uh, an fMRI, which is a functional uh, MRI that's the brain scan machine, just for the the people who are listening who may not know what that is. Yeah, we can deter. We can start seeing areas of the brain that are associated with different things, like optimism, like prediction, like how the brain views risk, and so. When we look at project management from the perspective of prediction, we can bring in all the sciences that are associated with that and they become more accurate at predicting how our projects will be or even mitigating risks in advance. Um, and, and one such, um, I'll, I'll just get the book right here, Super Forecasting. If you want to read a good book, uh, Dr. Tetlock did about three decades worth of research in prediction. And though it's not specific to project management, what he's done is he's uh, viewed it through the lens of behavioral science and how the brain interprets looking at the future. So there's, we have to do kind of change the frame there from planning to prediction. I've, I've made note of that book, Josh. And uh, as you're talking, I can't help but smiling and uh, realizing that the connections really are great between learning agility and project management. Um, in fact, when I'm coaching executives, I often tell them, you know, think about this as a project. The difference is, is that you are the project. And uh, that helps, I think that helps yeah. make them feel a little more at ease because some of the skills like prediction um, that fits well with, you know, strategic planning, planning, putting together a plan for how you're going to engage in your own learning. So there really are some very strong connections with project management. Yeah, very much so. And, and when I, I think back, and I, as as I always interact with my guests, I always try to bring it into my world and how it impacts me. And I think of estimating. And we work with our team members to build out a WBS, and then we'll estimate how long it's going to take them to take a task. And through 20-plus years of doing this, I now add 20% to their estimate because my prediction is that they are going to be overly optimistic in their estimate. And history has given me data to show that that's accurate, right? So um, without knowing Josh and any of this discussion previously, I'm thinking, does that fit into the context you just talked about? Very much so. I would add to that that um, as we move forward incorporating behavioral science, as we start incorporating that and redesigning our processes to account for those errors in cognition, 
what we want to do is not add a percentage of time to our estimates based on prior experience with optimism, but let the science inform us on how to reveal the things that would have made our predictions wrong to begin with. So for example, uh, a a uh, researcher by the name of Roger Bueller from Canada has done a lot of research in behavioral science in planning and forecasting. And what he found was that if you ask the question, are there any obstacles associated with this activity? Prior to asking them how long the activity will take, the forecast or prediction gets more accurate, right? So if we think this through for a second, we think, okay, well, I asked about an obstacle and the person identified an obstacle. What can you now do? You can actually, you have a chance to go note that obstacle, maybe even create an activity for it. You get a chance to mitigate it in advance. So by asking the right questions to account for human error, we can actually reduce the time that it took to do the activity, thus improving the actual outcome versus just adding a buffer at the end, because the buffer at the end doesn't mitigate the problem. It only accounts for the problem being in the activity. So there's a lot of ways that we can start to incorporate this science mm -hmm. and, and improve the actual delivery, not just the prediction. Sure, and that makes great sense. And I would even go so far as to um, suggest that over time, if you were selecting people for learning agility, or helping them develop that, you might be able to take that 20% down some because you'd have people who would know how to learn faster across different roles um, because they, you know, know, they know, they learn how to do things when they don't know what they're doing. That's what it's really all about. Well, and it makes me think, are we, do we have, a, are we born with this capacity? I mean, how, help me understand it better because what I see when I work with different teams across different companies, across different industries some people seem to be better at it than others. I mean, what is your experience with this, Veronica? You're absolutely right. Um, some people are born with more of it. Um, there's a direct relationship between things like being open to new experiences or um, being naturally curious that you can imagine those would be related to being more learning agile. But the good news is, and something I'm really passionate about, is that anyone can become more learning agile. And uh, one of the things that I promote heavily with the leaders I work with is that this is something that can be incredibly empowering for you. You don't have to be at the whim of the organization. You can really take charge of your own learning and being successful through um, what I call learning agile behaviors, things that relate to thinking, connecting with others, uh, managing your emotions. Uh, one of the things, one of the steps that is especially related to project management is doing, doing things in agile ways. So trying out new things, um, learning from that, and then repeating it. So uh, there are definitely things people can, can take control over and develop. Yeah. And I, I think uh, small things that I've come across in my time is, you know, I've always ask people, where did you park today? And they always park in the same spot in the parking lot. So I ask them, I said, well, tomorrow, why don't you try to park in a different spot? And they're like, that's crazy. Why is that going to matter? And I said, just try it. And they'll do that. They'll park in a different spot. When they go to leave for lunch, they'll walk back to where their car used to be parked all the time. Mm -hmm. And by just a small behavioral change like that, we're asking them to learn right, how to become a little bit more agile in their thinking which opens them up to doing things potentially differently than they've always done in the past. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and uh, and that, you know, hopefully it doesn't take too much courage to park in a different parking spot. But uh, I, the, one of the first things that I tell leaders when I'm working with them is if they want to grow, they need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. That may seem like a paradox, but think about it. When you go to the gym, if you're going to strengthen muscle, you know, you may be a little sore. You don't want to be to the point of pain or tearing muscle, uh, but you can expect a little discomfort. And and the more you work out that muscle of experimenting and trying new things, the stronger it's going to get. And it becomes a habit. And uh, over time, people are able to learn and apply those learnings across a variety of experiences more adeptly. I'm, I'm glad you uh, brought that up, Joe, and, and just kind of echoing on what Veronica said. And her and I had this conversation a while back as well, um, is that very notion of parking in the same spot over and over again is what a psychologist might call or sociologists habituation, which is essentially, and, and every mammal does it. We get in a routine and then we follow that habit, it becomes habitual and, and doing that same thing over and over again. In a project management environment, because of the time pressure, which creates more automatic thinking in the brain, habituation can become more of a problem in a project management environment. And so it's not like we would just take standard mitigating measures in operations because operations is different. But people who are on projects are maybe more susceptible to system one automatic thinking and therefore habituation can become more of a problem. And when the habituation becomes a problem, then your learning and innovation goes down. So it's, it's very much linked. I love when I'm not the smartest person in the room. And today, this is on full force with Veronica and Josh showing, <laughs> showing me the way and the great learning opportunity that I have in front of me with these two topics. So I'm really excited for this. No, I think you may be selling yourself a little short there, Joe. <laughs> so we talked about IQ a little bit. We talked about EQ a little bit. Uh, I had... Um, Guest on a couple episodes back, we were talking about CQ and change intelligence. I mean, Josh, you're you're talking about some really new stuff here in project management. Are, are we going to get a Q at the end of this? I mean, what is the what is the formula? What are you building off of this? Well, I like to it's it, and there's so many frames. Once again, I go back to the frames because in project management, we've heard so many different things, right? And there's you know you hear CQ and EQ and IQ, and I see those as kind of all these supplemental things that we bring into project management to make us higher performers or more innovative or de deliver projects quicker, et cetera. But I guess I'm not bringing a cue into this. Um, what The way I see it is that when we start bringing behavioral and neuroscience into project management, you realize that projects are invented by humans for humans. So processes are in, and all those technical things are actually further down in the WBS, so to say, uh, below human cognition. So it's not that IQ or EQ or CQ are, are science, such as everything builds on human behavior, which means we have to redesign everything. We have to redesign our processes. We have to redesign our methodologies, we have to redesign our interfaces and softwares. Everything has to be redesigned to account for, for human behavior, which means that we don't just now take leadership and bolt it on. We don't take 
IQ and bolt it on. We don't take change management and bolt it on. We take everything and we put it underneath the umbrella of the understanding of human cognition. And when we do that, we realize that many of the things that we have assumed now become, in many cases, null and void. If we look at economics, for example, and how they brought in, how they merged behavioral science with economics, when they did that, it called half of the economic, standard economics theories into question and invalidated many of them because many of them were based on the assumption of rational choice, that humans are um, somehow superior in their thinking and already purely logical. When we remove that assumption, we realize that many of the things built on aren't necessarily 100% accurate anymore. And that's fine. But now we just redesign those things around human behavior. And so things like IQ and EQ no longer become bolt-ons and even human behavioral pro or behavioral project management will not be a bolt-on. It will be the science that all methodologies are then built upon, if that makes any sense. And I know that's a huge, that's a huge <laughs> thing to say, but the science shows it. Yeah, and I think that um, like we, the way I view project management, or at least modern project management, right? Because if we think back, right, the pyramids were built with project management. They didn't just randomly go up. Uh, it may not have been a formal discipline with PMI and other organizations out there supporting it. But over the last 50 or so years that PMI has been around, we've become more formal in, in some of project management, but we haven't evolved into science of project management, right? I still hear at conferences and seminars that I go to and interact with other leaders that project management is more art than science. It's about the human element and how we can artfully get projects done. And what I'm hearing from you, Josh, is that well, perhaps we need to start bringing science underneath that and ensure that our art is being painted through the lens of a scientist. Oh, boy. That's such a, such a loaded statement and question. <laughs> but yes, so science and project management. So I was blown away when I started my research for my PhD. And, and I just have to give a shout out to uh, Dr. Rolf London from Sweden. He's one of the project management theorists that's on my committee. But when I originally had talked to him, he's like, because you, you have to put some kind of scientific foundation and, and theoretical foundation into, into your dissertation. And in the process, I realized, I don't have a theoretical foundation I can put into my dissertation. How do I build this? And then I realized, there's no scientific foundation under project management. Oh, my goodness. You know, PMBOK, APMBOK, Agile, etc., all the methodologies are essentially built on based on committee votes of let's add a process and then vote on it, which is fine. And it's served us up to this purpose, but up to this point, but now we have a couple of decades of science that we can start plugging in and they're based on evidence. So if we start aggregating this into one place, we can now build a scientific foundation under project management. And then it, and then in my opinion, it won't be project management anymore. It'll be project science. So when you go to get a degree in project management, it'll be, okay, well, now we're going to go get a master's in project science, just like that, project science. It's not just through the lens of the role of a project manager. It's the entire discipline of project science. And because there's so much evidence already available in, in research, I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands of articles that are written by researchers that we can go and aggregate this and put this together. 
Now we just have to make the project management discipline aware that it is there and then start providing that to them. So there's a huge undertaking that has to be done. And, and luckily, the, a lot of the work is already done. It just needs to be aggregated into one spot. Well, of course, all of that is talking about impact and Veronica impact, but learning agility, it's the same thing. There's impact that's there. I mean, what is what is the impact or, or non-impact of having or not having learning agility within our leadership? Well, I think, uh, you know, bottom line, it's the difference between, uh, you know, surviving or maybe even not so much as surviving and and really thriving. Um, and there's, again, there's a great deal of evidence to support that those with learning agility are more able to adapt to, re- you know, rapidly changing conditions. They can be put into different roles and be successful. They're success- more successful over time. And there's actually even connections to well-being. Because when you think about it, um, you know, when we're putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations and we're feeling threatened, that creates stress. So feeling more in control of that uh, is is also important for our well-being. So there's huge impact. And, and um, that percolates down to the organizations that these leaders work for. And of course, everything everything starts with leaders. So, in fact, uh, if you look back at the the Fortune 500 from when uh, that organization first started, there's only about 11 percent that have survived. And so, um, I think that organizations that don't focus on this and promote it, you know, may find themselves on that group that don't don't, don't stay on the top lists. For long, and organizations definitely can support learning agility by by providing opportunities for people to feel safe and doing some experimenting, to have chances to connect with others. We can learn so much from other people. I mean, we can only have so many experiences ourselves in a lifetime, but we can learn vicariously. So, if a project manager goes onto a new project where they don't know what to do, they can learn an incredible amount by tapping into what I call micro mentors, just different people who have done things at different times and by doing reading and looking for new frames of reference. So it can have a huge impact. And I think, again, going back, I did the webinar on Tuesday for Stuart Easton and his company, Transparent Choice, out of the UK. And uh, we'll have Stuart on a show, I think it's going to be in May. But I start all of my discussions with a, a, a trend graph of project from PMI, Pulse of the Profession, and over the past decade, the success rate of projects, and it's essentially flat. So all of the investment we've made in our community and people, in tools, and certifications, we're still doing it all the same way, to Josh, your point of the process hasn't changed, right? The PMBOK has evolved a little bit. Let's give some credit where it's due. But for the most part, project management hasn't changed in the past decade plus. And guess what? Our results haven't changed in the past decade plus. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that the more we're open in, to learning and changing how we act and bringing science and the way we evolve our thinking and, and how projects behave, we have an opportunity to change the results and not just the way that we're doing work, right? And that, you're both looking at results here. You're not looking at just the way that we do the work. Absolutely. It's, it's going to impact results in many ways. I mean, uh, think about even now with this coronavirus that we're dealing with. Um, if people don't adapt and change their behavior and uh, are, if they aren't willing to do things in different ways, 
it's going to be hard to be successful. Um, I think many of the leaders I'm working with are, are, are grappling with what are the new methods that, that they can use. And um, I think if they're learning agile, they'll adapt much more quickly and be more likely to, to uh, survive these condi- tough conditions we're living in. And Josh, I, I think same thing back to you, right? You're looking at improved results, not just uh, creating a dissertation for your PhD, but you're looking to potentially change uh, the way projects are, are managed and the results and outcomes we get from those. Yeah, very much so. Um, it, it's not science for the sake of science. It's not like, okay, well, I'm curious about this thing, so let's just go research it and see what the answer is. Um, it, it's almost like a lot of the research has been just kind of buried in databases for years or if not decades in some cases. And so it's really the aggregation of science now into uh, a model that can help accelerate the progress of humanity, so to say. Because if you, and we were just talking about this a few minutes ago, right? We were just talking about obstacle identification, which was a research study done by Roger Bueller. And if you are actually using that evidence, just using that one example of obstacle identification, you would have got an opportunity to mitigate some of the issues that the project was going to experience in advance. Therefore, you accelerated the rate of delivery. So it's not just science for the sake of science. It's using evidence-based methods and pulling those in so that you accelerate, you increase the accuracy of your prediction and you accelerate the pace of your delivery. If we were to just take that and say, hey, add 5 or 10% more performance to every project in the world, there are $15 trillion worth of projects that are accomplished in the world every year. $15 trillion. Just add $1 trillion of performance to that. You're accelerating the entire pace of humanity and, and delivering uh, projects, delivering dreams, accomplishments, things that people have been working on for years. So it's more, it's more than just science for the sake of science. It's science to accelerate delivery. Well, yeah, the last uh, Pulse of the Professional Report came out and said that 11.4% of project investment is wasted. Um, so immediately, you know, your million-dollar project is starting out with only $890,000 of investment. I would love to have the full million, right? Well, who wouldn't? Perfect example. And, uh, and this, I think, is, it leads off into artificial intelligence and the things that we're getting in other industries and other professions where we're getting mass amounts of data that the human brain can't calculate in a fast enough pace. So we're using artificial intelligence to go out there to help us be successful. Yeah, and, I, and, then, and if I don't, you don't mind, Joe, I'd like to touch on AI just for a second. When, when we look at AI and we see the project management literature and we see a lot of things that are being delivered in conferences these days, it's almost like we're looking to AI as the next project management jump or leap. And I don't believe that's actually going to be the case because AI will give us more data, like you said. But if we look and we consider the the brain again, as in data inputs, memory, processing, and then outputs, more data does not necessarily give us as much unless we're getting the right data for the right circumstance. Because the human will still ultimately make the decision. So if you don't de-bias the process and you de-bias the person who is processing the information, more data is not going to help us. So AI isn't going to be this huge leap, I think, in project management that we think it is. It's going to supplement that move forward 
but it will only supplement to a limited uh, amount because if we don't de-bias the decision-making process, uh, more data isn't going to help us. So it's it's kind of complex there. Yeah, and when I'm, I always I want to know what this looks like in real life, right? And how I can make it practical vision in my head as to what it looks like. So for Veronica, as you're talking through learning agility, give me some examples, right? How help me better understand? I, conceptually, I've got it, right? But what does it look like? What is a day to day learning agile person experience? They understand how to use different learning agile strategies on a regular basis. And so it may not necessarily be that they start out the day knowing exactly what they're going to do. Um, but first of all, by knowing what it is they're focused on learning, what they need to learn, they'll be primed to see those opportunities in their day-to-day work. And so, for example, if I'm a leader and I'm working on trying to engage my team more versus directing and taking over, when I go to staff meetings, I'm going to be more primed to see those opportunities. Another key everyday behavior that is just crucial is being avid about seeking feedback. Uh, and people people feel vulnerable when they do that. But I jokingly call it the breakfast of champions because uh, if you get in the habit of doing it, it, it I, I guarantee you, it will make you a better leader or project manager over time. Um, and just a couple basic practical ways to do that is, let's say after you leave that meeting, you say, you know, what did you think I did well in that meeting? Or how could I have been even better? That second question is important because people are often reluctant to give what they perceive as you know negative feedback. But if you phrase it in a way that uh, is like that, it makes it much easier. And then uh, you know a third thing that's really key is um, is taking time to reflect. You know, again, we're always going 100 miles an hour, and uh, you know, leaders will say, "I don't have time to reflect," uh, and and. I always say the difference between an experience and a learning experience is if you take the time to reflect on it. Otherwise, you're kind of destined to, you know, make the same mistakes over again. Or if you did something right, you don't know what it was that worked in order to replicate that. Um, I've worked with some remarkable leaders. There's one that comes to mind who a uh, fairly, you know, emerging leader in a Fortune 500 company. And I was so impressed with how she implemented some of these basic things of uh, being intentional in terms of preparing for how she was going to engaging different behaviors when she as part of work, seeking feedback. The more she did it, the more generous people got. The more they asked her for feedback back, she made time to reflect, and and reflection became almost a habit. So she was, you know, maybe on her way home from work, she was taking the time to just process what went well, what didn't go well. What am I going to do differently the next time? And so I know a lot of what Josh and I are talking about, you know, sounds real complex and, you know, maybe even academic, but it works. And uh, I think I mentioned to you that I'm working on an edited book um, for my profession. Um, I'm co-editor with uh, a colleague, uh, Dr. Ken Demise, and it's been probably one of the most exciting things I've ever worked on. And, uh, you know, there are, there are organizations like Google, uh, Amazon, uh, Penske, uh, PepsiCo that are contributing to this book. And uh, it's clear, Walmart, that organizations are taking this seriously. And they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't see some of the benefits from it. But it all boils down to some pretty fundamental things that every leader can do and, and really should do if they want to be successful over the long term. Yeah, I think back to my first 360-degree uh, evaluation as I was in a leadership training program. Of course, I thought I was a great leader, and, and these results are going to be awesome. 
and uh, across the board, all evaluators had scored managerial courage really low for me. And I had never considered myself a person who didn't have courage, but I had never been really a manager or leader before. So it made sense that I scored low there. But I, if I wasn't accepting of that feedback, I'd still have that same problem today, right? And I think I've uh, learned from that feedback to be able to then change behavior and then change outcomes. So I've lived that experience. Uh, Veronica, as you're talking about there, it really makes sense to me. Josh, anything to add into that discussion? Yeah, I would, I would also add to what Veronica was saying. It, it kind of reminiscent of slowing down our thinking, which cognitive psychologists refer to it as system one, which is deliberate thinking. It's the opposite, or system two, I'm sorry, system two. Uh, system two is slow, or it's deliberate, and it's the opposite of system one, which is automatic and fast. And with that, that system two deliberative, uh, relying on feedback, um, taking in information and actually processing it, uh, sometimes trying to develop new habits and doing things that are outside of what we typically do, that can be a part of that debiasing process. Because when we actually slow down our thinking, it's like allowing the computer to operate with all of its random access memory and process all the information it has in it. Whereas when we're in system one, it's like we've put a compressor on the computer and half the digits aren't getting through, right? So that system two slowing down, being more deliberate is half the battle in improving cognition. And it's, it's interesting that it's such a simple step, but they've found that we typically spend about 95% of our day in system one. You don't actually spend a lot of time in deliberate thinking. We spend most of our day in automatic thinking. And so echoing back to what Veronica is talking about with learning agility, we will not start learning in projects until we start slowing down our thinking. And because of the nature of the time constraint, we don't do that very often in project management. So if we want to become more innovative, if we want to become a learning organization and have learning agility, we have to slow down that pace and we've got to take that 95% automatic thinking lower. You know, maybe 80 or 85% might be might be a little bit better. I mean, if you can get 10% more a day, that's great, right? So, Well, and ironically, I, I think it goes to that cliche. You Sometimes you've got to go slow to go fast. Um, and I always tell people the first, first and often most difficult hurdle is breaking that, I call it the chains of automaticity, um, because they do chain us to habitual ways of behaving. Um, then, then once we get some of those new behaviors in place, then we do want them to be automated again. That type of thinking, it makes us more efficient. It's just knowing kind of when to put on the autopilot and when to take that switch off and be deliberate with what we're, you know, thinking, focusing on, you know, what feelings that might be triggering and then how that's influencing our behavior with others. And I'd like to add to that too, just a real life example or experience. I play a little bit of piano. I have since I was about 10 years old. So if you want to compare system one automatic thinking or automaticity versus slowing down and deliberate thinking and, and building new habits, when I first was learning to play the piano, getting a simple C major chord across the piano was pretty complex. But if I did it over and over and over again and deliberately practiced the right way over and over again, my automatic thinking eventually became error free. 
So then I could go across and do a scale on the keyboard across all 88 keys without error. But the same thing occurs with any other thing, especially in projects, where we have to develop deliberate practice in error-free thinking and learning first. And then eventually those things will translate into System 1 and become automatic. Yeah, I find new project managers, when we're coaching them or training them, it's an immediate reaction to respond and answer the question or the situation. And and I always instruct them, I said, let's slow down. Let's take a breath and let's understand what the situation is before you react because the reaction or experience you had previously may not fit this situation. And it's the hardest thing to do with folks is to get them to to think before responding. Yeah, perfect example of heuristics or mental rules of thumb, exactly. And questioning is such a powerful tool. I, I, I I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not encouraging leaders to use questions more. Um, you know, just maintaining that curiosity. You know, maybe you do have the answer, but by asking questions, you may identify new approaches. You may bring others into the process. And so going in with this, uh, you know, what they call beginner's mind uh, is can be very powerful. So how do you guys overcome that? That's the way we've always done it, right? It's the, uh, whether it's the behavioral science for Josh or the learning agility for Veronica, right? I mean, we see this every new customer we go and work with. I'll ask a bunch of questions and usually not at the leadership level, but in the, the ranks of the employee, they'll say, well, that's the way I've always done it. I don't need to do it differently. I, I would say I'm going I'm to add a really simple answer to this one from my own perspective. And, and I would say use the five whys. And because it is interesting once you start digging down into the purpose of why someone has done something uh, the same way over and over again, many times they don't even know why. It's just automatic thinking, right? So slow down your thinking and then get to the purpose. Well, how do you get to the purpose? You have to ask the word, why? Why are you doing it this way? And then ask again, why are you doing that this way? And if you can reveal that there are other perspective on perspectives on the same issue, sometimes they'll come to the conclusion on their own. And usually it boils down to to fear of something, fear about something. Um, there's this concept uh, called immunity to change, where even when where someone you know consciously wants to make a change, they don't do it. So, for example, let's say a manager, kind of similar to what I said before, manager goes to a meeting and they want to engage their team more. They don't want to be doing all the talking, yet they find themselves doing that over and over. And sometimes they have to kind of dig deep into what's going on there. And for example, in the case of this leader who talks too much, it may be that he has this mindset that if he doesn't contribute ideas, he's no longer going to be valuable to the organization. So generally, there's some sort of an underlying fear of loss of something that people have to uncover. Uh, maybe it's a filter in their their thinking that uh, is really getting in their way. Well, I love the, the, both of the perspectives there because as, remember our audience, right? They're out there, project managers, trying to think, how can I be better at projects? And they're confronted with these situations where there's a lot of resistance to projects and project teams, and we have to overcome the biases that people have. And one of those is I'm an operational resource who's being pulled off my day job to go work on this project 
and this project's not going to help contribute to my merit increase at the end of the year. So I just want to get this project stuff done with so I can get back to my operations, do well, and get a raise. And what we're learning from both of you today is that we actually become more, uh, we'll say, uh, susceptible to a raise if we're agile in our thought process and if we're more mindful of our behavioral decisions using thought processes that you're talking about as well, Josh. Right. So, oh, yeah. so this sure. has been uh, a fantastic discussion. I love this. I, I guess one last thing I have uh, that I want to bring up is, and, and we've touched on this, but I'd like to go maybe one step deeper is thinking versus feeling. And Josh, from your perspective, we think things, right? I've been a project manager for 20 years. I don't need any data to tell me how to go do this because I already know it. But I think what you're telling us today is that that's what I'm thinking uh, and, and what I'm feeling rather, but my thinking may tell me otherwise. Yeah. And I'll just touch on it real, real quickly. And, and this is more of a kind of a visionary statement and, and that where we need to go with project management. And that is that up to this point, uh, the majority of the things that we see uh, in project management training conferences, et cetera, are very much, very much focused on the feeling side of behavioral science which is very important, right? So you, we hear things like you know, motivation, emotional intelligence, kind of all those feeling things. The one thing that we have not spent a lot of time on in our discipline is the thinking side of behavioral science, cognition, the things that are going on in the background that sometimes in, incorporate feelings, but sometimes do not. We need to look at the brain as an information processor, not just a feeling processor. And so as we move forward through project management, I think we need to realize that there's a whole area of cognition that we have neglected in our discipline. And, and part of that, that, that neglect is due to the very things that Veronica is talking about with the lack of learning agility. And that lack of learning agility comes from the fact that we're under time pressure. So that time pressure has essentially, in our discipline, created a lack of learning and created a lack of innovation in, our, in the very thing that, that helps us thrive. So we have to slow that down. We have to bring in that new processing of looking at the brain as an information processing and that, as an information processor and then redesigning our entire discipline around that. Well, I think it's going to be a long journey to get us there, just from my experience working with some of the 800-pound gorillas we have in our profession. <laughs> but uh, hopefully shows like this one and the work that both of you are doing are giving an audience to a non-traditional mindset that helps change become more practical and realistic for all of us. Because I think we as a profession evolve when we're open and receptive. We have better learning agility for the concepts as both of you were talking about. So thank you both of you so much for being here. We're uh, again, I say it every single show because I'm still amazed uh, how quickly these shows go. Um, and I want to give you both one last opportunity to uh, let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you. And then any other topics, of course, we didn't get to. If you have any items you'd like to share, and Josh, we'll start with you. Yeah, so uh, thanks again for uh, letting me on the show here today, Joe. And pleasure talking with you, Veronica. I hope to have more conversations in the near future. For I'd sure. love that. Yeah, so you can reach me. By, by email, josh.ramirez, which is R-A-M-I-R-E-Z, at nbpmi.com. Uh, our website is www.nbpmi.com. Twitter is behavioralpm, 
And then our Facebook page is uh, Behavioral Project Management. And so those are the Institute uh, web pages. So yeah, I would also like to say that we're working on developing the first, uh, what I've seen so far, the first science-based training course in planning uh, called Neural Plan. So there we'll have an associated certification with that, the NPPQ. I'm working on that with a couple other researchers, one of them being uh, Dr. Gary Bates from Belgium, who studies prediction and forecasting from a behavioral science perspective. And so uh, working on many things, also seeking a couple of sponsors from universities, develop, develop eventually, hopefully, a college of project science and hope to build a behavioral PMO in one of the first innovative organizations. So that's what's going on over here. And I appreciate it again. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having it. And Veronica, to you as well. I don't have quite as many social media uh, things to share as Josh, but uh, one of the easiest ways to get in touch with me is uh, via my website, which is www.schmidtharvey.com. And that's S-C-H-M-I-D-T, Harvey, H-A-R-V-E-Y.com. Or via email at veronicas.harvey at gmail.com. Pretty simple. Uh, and I really would love to have discussions with anyone who's interested in this. Um, I, I work with leaders both individually and as groups to help them develop their learning agility. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I'm developing a, or editing a book for my profession that's going to be published by Oxford University Press, hopefully in early 2021. The manuscripts are all due here in about two weeks, so I'll be going home and reviewing chapters yet today. Look forward to, to talking with you further, Josh. And Joe, I really did have fun doing the show. Well, thank you both so much for being on today. Uh, great education and learning opportunities as we continue with the podcast. We have got a fantastic set of guests coming up in the next few months. Uh, you can learn more about the show by going out to or catching all of our past episodes out on projectmanagementofficehours.com. Every episode is listed out there as well as our upcoming guests. Uh, also, thank you to our listeners, right? Without listeners, we don't exist. So it's been fantastic uh, to be able to get the feedback from all of you from all over the world with what we've been doing with the show and the guests we're having on. And a reminder that these shows, while they are live, we do record them. They are released as a podcast, and you can find them out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Spotify, you name it. It's out on every podcast platform. And, of course, thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. Without the PMO Squad, we wouldn't be able to have the show and bring on the guests that we've had. So please visit the PMOsquad.com, learn about all of their project management services and how they can help you through these tough times and into the future as well. That's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. <laughs>